Hey, folks, welcome to the Investment News Podcast. This is Jeff Benjamin, along with my co-host, Bruce Kelly. Uh, it's 2021, and so far, so good. We've got a few things to go over with you today. We're going to talk about a uh, cover story I just wrapped up and just published on the outlook for the markets and the economy in the year ahead. And uh, we got a really good interview with uh, Bob Dahl of Nuveen and his predictions for the year ahead. How you doing, Bruce? I'm great. I mean, I remember Bob Dahl from uh, the Stone Age. You know, he's been around <laughs> a long time and he's been writing these predictions and market report cards for some time. So yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Wildly popular, his predictions. And he's a, he's a pretty smart guy, too. Jeff, I, I, I had the pleasure of reading your cover story about the market and, you know, and investing for 2021. And it seems like you had to make some revisions. You had to rework <laughs> a lot of stuff, right? Because of the really unexpected win by two Democrats in these senatorial runoff elections that were held last Tuesday and then bleed it into Wednesday, which became an ugly day because of the riots at the Senate. So what, you know, you had to go back and ask people about Georgia. Right. <laughs> what, what, what happened? What you had to do that with a lot of people. What happened with that? Yeah, it, it, a pretty interesting story. Uh, the the scenario, as it were, were, as you know, work on cover stories, you work on them for sometimes weeks, sometimes right. several days, whatever, but you do a lot of interviews. And and my my purpose, I was trying to wrap this up before the end of 2020. And I talked to a lot of people and every single person I talked to, and as you know, you don't always Everybody you talk to doesn't end up in your story, but every single person I talked to expected the Republicans to win those Georgia Senate seats. <laughs> so, you know, I wrote my story. With, I should have gone to Vegas, huh? Jeez. Under that, you know, assumption, and, and because that was such a big part of what everybody everybody's outlook that it became about a third of my eighteen hundred word story. And when the election turned out differently, I we had to scramble and go back and, uh, you know, re-interview people, revise things, tweak things and uh, rewrite a lot. And right. uh, but interestingly enough, it, it because the, it still leaves a pretty close to to even balance in the Senate, obviously tilting toward the Democrats, but still it's close enough that people don't think it's a it's anybody's going to get steamrolled that a lot of the a lot of the outlooks were essentially unchanged. The biggest difference was people thought there might be a better likelihood of of higher taxes and a better likelihood of more spending. But those things, in some ways, at least some people said, at least in the short term, they kind of offset one another. What about an increase in the minimum wage? That's a huge issue for the Democrats. The well, fifteen I, yeah, bucks an hour. I, that didn't come up in in a in a kind of an economic outlook story, but that is obviously on the table and much right. more likely now. And there are other things. I mean, you you know, I talked to uh, one company advisor shares they they uh they sponsor a couple of ETFs that invest in cannabis. And cannabis as you know is is well as you know Bruce of course is uh, is is legal in in several states. Not in New York yet, my friend. Yeah, well, uh, for you know, not where I live in North Carolina either, but for you know, some places for medicinal, some places for recreational. Sure. But it's not ever been legal on a federal level. And, and this is something that I know Democrats probably have a lot of things that they're looking at ahead of that. But if 
there's ever any, you know, free time, maybe that's something that they'll, they'll be focusing <laughs> well, on. Well, the, th- the thing about marijuana as a as an issue is it's really uh, a strong it, if Democrats get it on the ballot in state elections, it really brings out the youth vote. So (laughs) (laughs) it's almost it's almost better if we keep if Democrats were to keep that at the state level. You know what I mean? And to motivate young people to vote. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it it is. There's a lot of things like that, though, in the ballot just to bring people out. And sometimes it's different constituents that they're trying to bring out. But yeah. But that is, you know, minimum wage that's probably on the on the on the docket at some point. Um, but that goes up every year anyway. They, it just who knows how high it's going to go. It doesn't go up every year, but it, it's it's it hasn't been raised. The federal minimum wage hasn't been raised in, in years. Right. But states states override that with their own policy. Yes. But anyway, yeah, it, it is. You know, it's a it's a generally positive outlook for the year ahead. And hopefully there's less fighting and bickering in Washington. And, you know, hopefully we get back. How could there be any more? Well, be careful what you ask for. (laughs) (laughs) After what we just went through? Come on. Don't jinx us, man. It's it's only January. (laughs) All right. Let's let's talk to Bob Dahl. Yeah, let's get Bob Dahl on here. Hey, folks, how you doing? We now have Robert C. Dahl of Nuveen to his friends and co-workers and family goes by Bob. Uh, Bob is a senior portfolio manager and chief equity strategist at Nuveen. Bob manages seven portfolios, including large caps and alternatives. He is a highly respected authority on the equities markets among investors, advisors, and the media. As the author of a widely followed weekly commentaries and annual market predictions, Bob provides ongoing, timely market perspectives. We have Bob with us today because we're timing this to his annual predictions for the year ahead. These are wildly popular predictions. No lie that they 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 do move page views in our business. Bob, thanks for joining us. That's great to hear. We we want to before we get into a little bit of the predictions, we want to talk to you a little bit about about you and and kind of the why these. Predictions are are so popular, and we'll probably even taunt you a little bit on your track record. But I think uh, I think Bruce has the first question for you. Hey, Bob, thank you so much for 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 coming on. Very much a pleasure to meet you. Thanks, Bruce. As we were kind of saying in the background interview for this, you know, I remember you from back in your Merrill Lynch investment managers days, which, according to your bio, I think you joined in '99, and then of course. Uh, that company, Merrill Lynch, spun that off in 2006 to BlackRock, and then you were with BlackRock, and then you moved over to Nuveen a few years later, I believe. So you've had quite a, a fascinating career in, in the business, and you were saying that you've even done these predictions for 30 years. These, your list is wildly popular with financial advisors. You were a Merrill, you're a Merrill Lynch veteran. You were there when when Kamansky was still there, I believe. That's correct. The broker's broker, as they would call him. Some people would call him. Just tell us about the predictions. Why do you think they're so popular? Why does it stand out so much when there's like a, a sea of financial predictions to end and begin every new year? Yeah, hard to know for sure. I guess I would say, A, we've been doing it so long. and uh, that, 30 that, years, right? 
Yeah, more than 30 years, it gives us uh, some continuity, which I think people pay attention to. B, we grade ourselves. I actually have a grader. It goes through them every year. We we give quarterly updates, what we're getting right, what we're getting wrong, and why. And I think people love the fact that you don't just make them and run away. You you, you get some right and you get some wrong. Right. And the third thing, I think, is uh, because I'm a portfolio manager, you know, most predictions are made by strategy types, economists, right. et cetera. And the fact that, uh, you know, I've got skin in the game every day and managing money probably is another reason that, and another one just popped into my head. You know, I spent a lot of time in the field, in financial advisor offices. So I know these guys, they know me, and I have a feeling that um, that's part of the reason it's gotten some uh, notoriety over the years. How has the, the financial advice business in your mind, evolved or changed over the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Like we mentioned, you were with Merrill Lynch and must have been on the call in the morning several times, or if not daily. There used to be, remember the old Schwab ad, put a lipstick on that pig, right? Yeah. As a taunt, you know, Charles Schwab doesn't give that kind of advice to people. They were taunting firms like Merrill Lynch and UBS. I remember going to an old SIA meeting and and people being livid about that ad, put a lipstick on this pig. And how how has it changed? How how have advisors changed? How has your role with advisors changed? Anything like that? Yeah. So, um, boy, uh, books have been written on this subject, as you know. I guess just a few top of the head observations. One, it's become an older person's business. We need new blood in the financial advisor. 30 years ago, it was a young guy's business. Exactly. <laughs> uh, exactly. And uh, people have come around and not enough new guys have come in. It's become far more specialized. You know, in, in the early days, it was one financial advisor who did everything. You know, he picked, he or she, mostly he picked stocks. He had brought in new business. He serviced the client. I mean, he did it, he did it all. Now it's much more around teams where you got your, uh, maybe your stock picking expert, your asset allocator expert, the guy who does client relationships. Yeah, you have a whole customer management person now on a team, right? Yes, exactly right. So there've been lots of changes along the way and the business has um, gotten far more competitive as, as we know, and appropriately so. And an old firm like yours, Merrill Lynch, is very, very different type of place now than it used to be, I would imagine. Without without question, far more oversight from the home office in terms of what you do, how you do it, what investments you use, compared to the old days where, you know, I could be long a stock and you could be in the next office, maybe uh, in the same building, short the stock and working for the same firm. Those things have, have been uh, changed significantly. Right. That's that's fascinating. Thank you for all that background. Jeff, do you you had some yeah. some questions for for Bob here. Bob, let's. Uh, you said you you kind of track your uh, performance, and I know that I have seen updates through over the years. A lot of times, mid year updates. Sometimes a lot of people don't do that, Jeff. Good. Though, right? They don't track. Right. They don't grade themselves exactly. like Bob. Yeah. So so what? Do you have any kind of rough idea? I don't imagine you got your baseball <laughs> card right in front of you or anything. What's, but what's your batting yeah. average? Yeah, what's your batting average, average according to our grader is in the 70s. So that's you know, pretty we good. Seven, seven plus, right on average over the years. So you oh, 700. Good. Yeah, exactly. Well, I that's I like a Babe year, Ruth sold the squat head, material right there. There you go. When you head into the new year, the last thing you want to do is you know get two right out of 10 
and you say, yeah, we got two right. Come and hear what we say next year, you know? <laughs> so well, no wonder you're so popular with financial advisors for crying out loud. Come on. Yeah. Well, I, I like your predictions because they go across the, the spectrum of financial services. You, you know, you talk about GDP, bond yields, where you expect the dollar to be, and you, you often pick sectors and so forth. I want to touch on a few of those in a minute, but uh, first I want to ask, did anything strike you as maybe something you wish you had adjusted a little bit once you saw the uh, results of the Georgia runoff elections and you saw that Democrats were going to control pretty much all of Washington for the next few years? Not really. It actually makes a couple of things that we've said have a higher probability of getting them right. I mean, oh. our, our overall view is we are in a, in a reflationary world, meaning that uh, monetary and fiscal policy is peddled to the metal and the authorities are trying to get growth to increase. And a lot of our predictions feed into that. And the election means with the Democrats in control that the probability of yet another aid package on the order of, let's use a placeholder of a trillion dollars, goes up a lot, which only aids this reflationary story. Yeah, let's just make clear, Jeff, right? The predictions came out before the special runoff elections in Georgia, which were held January 5th, I believe. Right. Right. So Bob published these predictions before that. Yes, we, we always release on December 31st. Okay, great. That's interesting. Your first prediction here is U.S. real GDP increases at the fastest pace in 20 years. I'm assuming now you're going to say at the fastest, fastest pace in 20 years, right? <laughs> That's probably right. So the consensus has GDP this year up three point something, 3.8. We're in the fours, and it could be over five. 2020 huh. growth was 4.1. So we beat that, and it's better than 20 years. You go back in time, we could actually have the best economic growth in the U.S. in 36 years, back to 1984, when our economy grew over 7%. Does um I don't want to get into the 2022 predictions just yet, but <laughs> what about the uh, what about the, uh, the the hangover from all that? What that's got to concern you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, well, well, I mean, I guess we had a bear market sometime in 2020. It didn't last very long, but yeah, we'll have a hangover at some point. Uh, the debt, the deficits, valuation levels. You know, at some point, we'll see the other side of this, but. Fighting the Fed and fighting the tape is a loser's game, and so I'm not I'm not ready to throw in the towel on that. But I got my antenna up. I've seen enough end of cycles to know this won't won't last forever. Mm -hmm. On the inflation one, I, I'm assuming that this is also going to be ramped up just a just a snidge. You got U.S. Treasury yield reaching 1.5 percent. That's even you know a, a pretty big leap from where it is right now, isn't it? Yeah, the consensus is 125 for the end of this year. So 150, we're very high end. And I think if I'm wrong, I think rates are higher than 150, not lower. I mean, I've got now the benefit of four trading days in the new year. And we end December 31st with the 10-year Treasury yielding 93 basis points. You know, we're almost 110 as we, uh, as we, as we talk. That's going to that's gonna help the financials, right? No Bob? question. It, financials are one of our favorite sectors. It's obviously been a sector that's lagged miserably for the last bunch of years. But with a better economy, they're going to be making more loans. With a steeping of the yield curve, uh, net interest margins will improve, and the stocks are pretty cheap. That's, that's a pretty potent combination. Right. 
Yeah, I, I've been following your predictions long enough, Bob, that I know that there you you are generally pretty optimistic. I don't want to call it always bullish, but I like your optimistic spin. And I think because you're such a nice guy, people don't often challenge you on that. But I'm going to challenge you a little bit here. I mean, this these predictions for the Treasury yield and in, in essentially bond markets, it, it's been the low bond market yields that have been really driving the equity markets. So what does that do to the equity markets if fixed income starts to look a little bit more attractive? Yes, it creates a challenge. So let me say it this way. We expect in 2021 to have a great economy and great earnings, but only a good stock market. Oh, If interest okay. rates and inflation tick a bit higher, that probably means there's a little bit of pressure on valuation or P.E. ratios, which, as you know, are pretty high. So my guess is whatever earnings growth we get this year, stocks will only be up about half of that. So if earnings are up 20, uh, I think stocks are only up about 10 because we're going to have some P.E. ratio pressure. Mm -hmm. it, it is kind of interesting when a 10% return for the stock market seems kind of eh, you know. I'll take it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I agree. I mean, our, our, our our I'll take it all, all day long. Is, Yes, our official target is thirty nine fifty, which implies a seven percent return. Right. Okay. You you also say the the U.S. dollar sinks to a five year low. Explain to our audience what that means sure. uh, in, in real terms. There. So for starters, of all our predictions, this is the one that is the most in the consensus. The dollar has been weak in the last few months. Back short term, it might be a little oversold, but the problems are many. One, our net national savings rate is going the wrong direction. Our current account deficit is going the wrong direction. And maybe more fundamentally, if we are in a reflationary world, that is economic growth everywhere picks up some, relatively, the U.S. does the worst. The, the United States is the most defensive economy and stock market in the world. So when growth is mediocre or disappointing, as it's kind of been most of the last decade, guess who wins? We do, because the rest of the world's increased cyclicality suffers. If, in fact, we're going to get improvement in, in growth around the world, the cyclicality of non-U.S. will benefit more. That's another reason the dollar will probably be under some more pressure. Okay. This is one that I didn't really completely understand, and I apologize I wasn't in your press conference earlier this week when you discussed this, but stocks outperform cash, but cash outperforms treasury bonds for the first time since 2013. I don't understand how, how cash outperforms anything, frankly. So if interest rates go up, bonds go down. So, And that's our view. If we end the year with a 150 10-year treasury, if you've owned a 10-year treasury, you're losing money and cash beat you. But it seems like you're losing money in cash, also, right? With with rates so low. Well, ca cash has an uh, you know a, a nominal return of a few basis points. I'm not sure cash is a great place to be, but if your choice is between cash and a treasury bond, I'd rather see you in cash. Okay, small caps. You like small caps to outperform uh, large caps. Is that something based on what kind of ticked up in the at the toward the end of 2020? Uh, well, it's certainly uh, the, the move in that direction was occurring toward the end of 2020. But as you know, we've been in a uh, period that's lasted quite some time where big has done a lot better than small. Among the reasons we think small outperforms is back to the comment I just made. 
Small cap companies tend to be more cyclically oriented than big cap companies. Therefore, small cap company earnings gains will be superior to large cap companies. And if you look at valuation levels, they're cheaper on the small side than they are on the expensive side. I line all those things up and look, this business is a probability business. My guess is small beats big. What about value? You got value beating growth. It seems like every year there's somebody making that prediction, uh, but it seems you can't mean that one. I mean, that's a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you see that all the time and it never happens. You know, when was the last time it happened that value actually beat growth? Uh, the last time that happened uh, was 2016. <laughs> you can't even remember, you know, come on. I'm looking at, I'm looking at the data here. 2016 was the last really? time. So 17, 18, 19, 24 years in a row, growth beat value. Right. Did you call it in that? Did you call it that year? Please tell me you got it right, Bob. You know, I, honest with you, I don't even remember if we, if we even made a comment on growth versus value that year. I'd have to go back and look. But to put it in perspective, over the last 10 years to December 31st, growth stocks are up 389%. Value stocks, 171%. So growth didn't only beat value, it cleaned the clock of value. Right. So you're just going by reversion to the mean or something well, like that? I guess that's one way to look at it, but it, it comes back to the same principle. When does value do better? Value is a lot more cyclical companies. Think financials. Yeah. Uh, growth is a lot more stable companies. Think of Coca-Cola or other more stable companies. We're not in a world where those defensive stocks are going to win if growth's going to be good. You want to be in those down and dirty cyclicals. Well, and that, that kind of gets to your next prediction, health care and financials outperform energy and utilities. And to me, that's got to have something to do with the Biden administration, right? Um, to some degree, although I would say that as a result of the uh, uh, Georgia elections and the Democrats taking the Senate, the, the regulatory bounce back from Trump taking so many regulations off the table is likely to negatively Hit net healthcare and financial. So that's a minor negative as a result of, of the Georgia election. Okay. And the uh, this one, I'm imagining you might tweak as well, but it's scary no matter how you slice it. U.S. Uh, federal debt rises to more than 100% of GDP and on its way to an all-time high. I mean, how does that get managed? Whether you're right or wrong, where yeah. it is now is bad. So I think one of the questions I've gotten most often in financial advisor offices over the last bunch of years is the debt and the deficit, Bob, does this matter? And my answer has consistently been not yet. It's clear we're borrowing from the future, but when you think about it, interest rates have fallen faster than debt and deficits have gone up. And as a result, interest expense, the amount of money the government has to pay on that debt as a percentage of GDP has gone down. It is only when interest rates stop going down and or go up does this start becoming a problem, and we're probably coming on to that. Till now, it has just not mattered. Okay. And we're getting into a little bit of, into the geopolitical arena now. You, uh, you have the U.S.-China Cold War continues, but the conversation becomes quieter and more multilateral. I, I don't even know what that means, Bob. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> that just sounds like you're just trying to throw a ninth prediction in there. Well, maybe that's the case, but I, I think China is by far the number one national security threat to the United States. I mean, Beijing has made it clear. 
privately and sometimes publicly. They want to dominate the U.S. and the rest of the world economically, technologically, militarily. And so this Cold War between our countries, the number one and number two and virtually everything, is, is not, not pretty seen. And I think it's going to continue. Now, the quieter and more multi multilateral has everything to do with the change in administration. Joe Biden has already said, I'm not going to make a lot of changes in our policy with China until I get our allies uh, on board and we try to do something together. That's not guarantee it's going to work, but it's going to most certainly not be the unilateral approach that Donald Trump took. It's going to be more bilateral. Does this China threat, does this mean Bruce is going to have to close down his TikTok account? <laughs> Maybe eventually. <laughs> he's, a, he's a big TikToker, um, whatever that is. This this next, this next last one here, I, I, I kind of think you're cheating here. You said you predict that Biden will win the election. Come on. No, I'm kidding. You didn't say that. We did. Um, we did. He <laughs> did. You got one right right out of the blocks. Uh, no, it's oh, last uh, year. Last year. Yeah. Despite polarization, President Biden, Senator McConnell, and moderate forces achieved some compromise legislation. What would that compromise legislation be and look like? Yeah, so so for starters, remember how the bill that was passed in December, the aid bill, took months and months and months. Yes. And, and it died a few times. Who brought it back to life? Answer, moderate senators and moderate House reps from both parties. And then you get the Georgia thing that makes it 50-50. The marginal power is now with the moderates, like a Joe Manchin of West Virginia. What might happen if these guys can come together? It starts with Biden and McConnell knowing each other for decades in the Senate, actually being friends. I hope the two of them are going to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner often. That would mean they're trying to get something done. What could happen? Another uh, aid stimulus package. We might get a modest infrastructure bill. I suspect we'll got to get a modest tax bill. You know, if I if I were a a U.S. company that paid no or very low taxes, I'd be worried. I think they're going to come after me. So it'll be those sorts of things at the mar margin. It's not going to be you know a big green new deal or some massive spending and tax increases. It'll be smaller things at the margin. Okay. I got two more quick questions for you here, and then we'll let Bruce close it out. But one is, can you think of any updates or revisions that you would like to make, if you could, to this list based on the events that have occurred since you made, since you posted these predictions? And you don't have to have an answer, but... Uh, the the answer is uh, not really, since we only uh, issued them about a week ago. There have you know, been a couple of changes, the Georgia elections, the, the noise in the Capitol, but, but neither of those have made, made big changes. In fact, the, 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 the Georgia elections, uh, I assume the Republicans would win at least one seat. Of course, they didn't. So the 50 now Democratic just increases the probability that this reflation story, which underlies these predictions, becomes more real. Right. And then the next one I want to, it's a, it's a little bit off the beaten path, but uh, I want to ask you, what is your, what are your thoughts on modern monetary theory? And do you think there's a, a, a fighting chance of that coming to fruition in the United States? So I would argue it is operable. I think when central bankers damn the torpedoes, and say we're not thinking about thinking about raising rates. That's basically MMT. I mean, mm -hmm. they're doing it, and many other countries as well. My problem with it is it just implies 
in some sense, it's just a free lunch. And uh, I don't know about you guys. I, I, I've looked all my life. I don't get many free lunches. <laughs> right. Well, it also, the other problem that I see with it is it takes the Fed out of the picture. That seems to be pretty dangerous, putting all of that monetary policy into the hands of elected officials, doesn't it? So true. So true. Uh, and they're political animals. The Fed is supposed to be, and to some degree at least, is nonpartisan, and you you want that balance. So uh, we don't want to get away from that. Right. Well, I, I would hope maybe we'll get you back at the mid-year mark, but uh, in, to talk about your updates, and we'll we'll give you a little uh, thrashing if you got any of these wrong. But uh, <laughs> Bruce, did, did you have any closing comments or questions for Bob? It was just interesting, the sectors that you were talking about, Bob. I mean, those are your Dividend-paying stocks too, right? Well, healthcare has moderate dividends with their cash flow and good balance sheets. They should have dividend increases, right? As you know, financials until not long ago were told no, no dividends. The right. banks, in particular, and they will come back and they, they they can because they have the cash and much better balance sheets of the U.S. banking system is as healthy as been in a long, long time. So they can pay out dividends. They can buy their stock back. That's great. Thanks so much. Of course. Well, thanks a lot, Bob. That was excellent stuff. I mean, obviously, you're you're just a, a wealth of knowledge, and uh, it's really great to have you here. We're, we're glad you could join us, and we, we'd like to get you back to pick your brain some more because you don't seem, we can't seem to stump you. So <laughs> thanks, thanks for being here, and Happy New Year. My privilege. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners as well. Yeah, Bob, that was great. Uh, you know, I remember getting your predictions, you know, in faxes 20 years ago, and people saying, <laughs> hey, days. check this out. Oh, my. <laughs> So, We're dating ourselves. Great. Thank you so much for being here. All the best, guys. That was a terrific episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank again our special guest, Bob Dahl, the Senior, Port- uh, senior Portfolio Manager and Chief Equity Analyst at Nuveen. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. And of course, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple. Also follow us on Spotify. Thanks for listening, and we'll be talking to you next week.